Welcome to Women's Health, Wisdom, and Wine, a weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily women's health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comment section or send us an email at info at To learn more about our team's approach to care, visit our website at www.larenawhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, remember to follow the podcast, leave a five-star rating, and tap on the bell to make sure you never miss an episode. Let us know what is your favorite topic, who has been your favorite guest, and who would you like to hear from on the next pod. Most importantly, share the podcast and your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. Lastly, remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute for a bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. Coming up, I talk with Dr. Gail Gazelle about mindfulness and meditation, what it is and what it is not, the four T's, and six ways mindfulness addresses burnout, an occupational phenomenon that I call disengagement or compassion fatigue. So grab yourself a glass of Sangiovese and we'll join the conversation after a brief word from our partner. Maintaining your strength and a healthy heart as you age helps promote healthy living and hence quality of life for all people as they age. To help prevent the natural decline of muscle and heart function, it's important to make sure you're getting the nutrition your body needs, and not just any nutrition, but science-backed nutrition, like life, by the AminoCo. You can take AminoCo's life formula as part of your normal routine to help maintain muscle mass as you age, maintain good heart health, and increase longevity as you age. AminoCo's Life is a patented blend of essential amino acids that works to improve quality of life and lengthen total lifespan so you can stay healthy and active as you age. Life has been shown in clinical trials to clinically improve blood lipid profiles by significantly reducing triglycerides, LDL, VLDL, and total cholesterol. This product has also improved physical function in patients with heart failure, and they had the science to back it up. Life is 100% science-backed, and it is designed for heart health and active aging, which are crucial for total lifespan. So why Aminoco? Life works by triggering muscle protein synthesis, which is the body's mechanism for repairing and building muscle. When tested against any protein source, life is more than three times more effective on a gram-for-gram basis at stimulating muscle growth and repair. I know just how important it is for my quality of life and staying healthy as I age. You can check out their science by visiting aminoco.com backslash LW30. I've been on the lookout for something that could help me support healthy blood flow and help preserve heart strength and function while also helping me maintain healthy triglyceride and LDL cholesterol levels. Furthermore, something that tastes great and is easy to incorporate into my daily routine. What's even better is that AminoCo's Perform was created by former Harvard professor and well-renowned clinical researcher, Dr. Robert Wolf. If you're looking for a nutritional advantage when it comes to maintaining muscle mass and cardiovascular health as you age, I recommend you give life a try. 
And right now you can get 30% off when you visit aminoco.com backslash LW30. That's the letters L, W, and the numbers 30. Again, right now you can get 30% off LW30 when you visit aminoco.com backslash LW30. That's the letters L, W, and the numbers 30. Mindfulness is the basic human ability to be fully present, aware of where we are and what we're doing, while not overly being reactive or whelmed by what's going on around us. While mindfulness is something we are all naturally possess, it's more readily available to us when we practice on a daily basis. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Gail Gazelle about how mindfulness addresses burnout, specifically in healthcare. Dr. Gazelle, please introduce yourself and let us know how we can use mindfulness as a reliever of chronic stress and burnout. Thank you so much, Lorena. It's a complete pleasure working and talking with you today. And yes, a little bit about my background. Um, I was a hospice physician for most of my career, so I was really privileged to be on the sacred end-of-life journeys with thousands of individuals and their loved ones. And at the same time, I've been at Harvard Medical School for most of my career. I'm an assistant professor here, and I do a lot of teaching of doctors in training. And I'm also a mindfulness educator and someone who practices mindfulness on a pretty regular basis and has really seen the benefits of it. For the last 12 years after leaving my career in hospice, I pivoted and became really a pioneer in the field of physician coaching. So over the last decade, I've coached physicians who are struggling with burnout, struggling to find their place in our very complex and highly broken healthcare system. I'm so glad you said the word broken. I use that very often. (laughs) We have to be honest, don't we? And I've just really seen the value of mindfulness in helping people gain some mastery over their own minds, something that we don't always learn in our training as physicians. Yeah, we definitely don't learn that. <laughs> right, that we can discuss this today. And I'll, I'll just say one other thing by way of an introduction, which I'm delighted my next book is coming out in June, right. Mindful MD, Six Ways Mindfulness Restores Your Autonomy and Cures Healthcare Burnout. Wow, and we'll talk about that a little bit as well as we get further along, because I want to know what those six ways are, um, and I'm sure our listeners do too. So back to recovering from burnout. Many people will suggest tracking stress levels or identifying stressors, journaling, therapy, exercise, stress management techniques, the infamous work-life balance that's just never attainable, um, healthier sleep schedules, a healthy diet, and even setting boundaries. However, your approach is mindfulness, a life skill that focuses on the bigger picture, actually the biggest picture. How does mindfulness help with burnout while encouraging people to cultivate a more peace-oriented lifestyle? Well, you're right. There are a lot of ways to help people manage and recover from burnout. And all of the ones that you've mentioned are critically important. I support all of them. And what's really important about mindfulness is sometimes the word conjures up an image of monks (laughs) meditating, you know, for hours or days or weeks. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes, On a mountaintop. Right. 
some secluded village somewhere. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Yes. (laughs) And that's one aspect of mindfulness that's very real, but it's not necessarily the one that's pragmatic for healthcare workers in a Western country. And it's important to realize that really what mindfulness is, is our ability to work with our own mind, to actually gain mastery over our mind, rather than what I think is true for many of us is that we're kind of the captive of our mind. Mm, Our minds are busy producing all kinds of thoughts and stories and assumptions, worries, fears, preoccupations, ruminations. We all know this, right? And most of us really don't learn how to work with our own mind, Mm -hmm. really the instrument that we're all using all of our waking hours. So for me, that's the beauty and power of mindfulness is that we gain that mastery and we regain the autonomy that all of us can have no matter what external difficulties we're facing. Yeah. I really saw this in my career in hospice right. for right. people who were so disoriented and facing just really horrific, tragic situations, many dying well before their time. Mm. And what I witnessed is that when individuals could work with their own thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, emotions, etc., they could come more to a place of acceptance. Yeah, They could say goodbye to their loved ones. They could have closure on their life as opposed to sometimes dying, let's say, in an ICU, hooked up to machines, not with loving family nearby. Yeah, That's kind of the power that we're talking about here. Right. And I think you tied it all into mind mastery. And I think so many times when we think about mindfulness or even meditation that we're thinking about calming or quieting or silencing versus utilizing those same thoughts, feelings, emotions, not ignoring them or trying to tamp them down, but mastering the thoughts and let us, instead of letting those thoughts master us. And I think it's impossible for us to turn it off because we need our minds, like you said, for so many things, even while we're sleeping and dreaming and doing all those things. Um, those are our sleeping hours, but it's not necessarily about quieting the mind. It's about mastering it. So thank you for making that helpful and that useful distinction. Yes. And when we master the mind, I will say we can achieve a little bit more quietude, but certainly we're not going to be turning off the mind. Um, If we tried, we would simply fail because it's the mind's job to produce thoughts. Right. And, and for us to experience them, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how does one practice mindfulness for burnout? One of my practitioners told me to remember the four T's, transitions and tea time and toilet and telephone. So every time I move from one activity to the next during the day, whether it's my drinking my tea, using the restroom, checking my phone, or just kind of shifting from one activity to the next or one client to the next, I do some four, seven, eight breathing exercises. So does that count as mindfulness? It definitely counts as mindfulness. Because (laughs) with mindfulness, we're stepping out of what we might call a a type of autopilot that most of us live in. We go through our days. Our days can really be a blur. In fact, the seasons change and Mm -hmm. it can be a blur. We think to ourselves, well, where did summer go? You know, Mm -hmm. it was just here. My kids, they grew up so quickly. Those are all forms of kind of life being a blur. Right. And so with mindfulness, we're really tuning in to the moments of our lives. We're stepping out of all the thoughts and stories and judgments about our lives and about those who occupy our world. 
And we're actually stepping more into the actual experience. So things like you're talking about, forms of, of um, volitional breathing, of really being very intentional with the breath, are all ways that we can practice mindfulness. And they're all of value. Right. There's plenty of neuroscience evidence of that, as well as people's lived experience of the evidence of, of again, gaining some degree of mastery over the what we could call the thought machine that most of our minds are. Yeah. In addition to, I like how you said it, volitional breathing, what other practices do you suggest for mindfulness, and specifically in terms of for burnout? Well, one that I think is very important is something that could sound quite simple. It's actually taking pauses mm -hmm. in your day. Yeah. We often call this a purposeful pause. So you mentioned transitions. So you're a busy doctor, you're going from room to room, taking care of one sick patient after another. Right. And sometimes we're in such a hurry and we feel so pressured mm -hmm. for time that we just don't slow down at all. We're going, yeah. going, going. It's as if we're kind of running some sort of race. Mm -hmm. If we can remind ourselves to actually pause in between patients, for example, long enough to do a simple breathing exercise like the one that you're trained to do, yeah. Yeah. we can have more closure from the past experience and we can be a little more open and receptive to the next experience, the next patient that we're going to be taking care of. It's a way of pacing ourselves in the busyness of our days. And I think for overworked clinicians, which is basically everyone, all of us <laughs> in the healthcare system, whether it's doctors, nurses, technicians, therapists, all of us are overworked at this point in time. Yeah. We can all benefit from taking these purposeful pauses on a regular basis so that we, again, we pace ourselves for what we might call the marathon of our career, which we can't keep running as a sprint. We're not going to survive it. We're going to burn out. It's going to happen. We don't, yes, if we don't pace ourselves. So that, that's something that I is free and easy, mm -hmm. doesn't take a lot of time. So that's often where I like to start. Yeah. And I think, again, focusing on the time component. I used to always say, well, I don't have time or it's going to take too much. And again, I was under the mind frame that it's going to take a half an hour or an hour. But I can do two cycles, sometimes, you know, four, depending on how you know my breathing is on any given day. And I can do it in 60 seconds. And we all have 60 seconds. We all we do. do. We do. And it's a powerful reset, isn't it? That's really what I hear you yeah. describing it. Yeah, I, I love all that. All of a sudden, we're kind of restored a little bit. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a reset, and we can do better with that next person, not just for their benefit, but for our for hours. And I find it especially beneficial toward the end of my day when mm. it's you know patient number eight. And my thing is, I want to be able to give them what I gave that first person at seven a.m. and just giving that extra time and being intentional. It's like an etch a sketch. Like I can erase everything that happened and start again, and be able to feel like, wow, this is all, you know all brand new. Especially when I'm going it's a great home. Image, yeah, actually. it's brand new, and it's and it seems like it's such a simple thing that can't possibly be that easy, but it is. And I was a convert um, <laughs> because I was like, there's no way in the world, you know, just taking a couple deep breaths is going to help. Um, <laughs> But then when I started like actually being intentional about it, it was like, I feel better in the afternoon than I have ever felt. 
um, when, you know, after three o'clock, things will start to be a drag. And it's like, no, they don't have to be this way either. And you can still provide That's the right. quality of care that you want to give. Yes. And that really speaks to when you said that the autonomy that we can have when we invest in some of these very simple practices, because you just said that so clearly, I didn't think I had the time. Mm -hmm. I was skeptical, but actually I found something that allowed me to erase what had happened before, difficult, good, whatever it is, and actually be refreshed mm -hmm. for myself so that I, again, can, can kind of make it through the busyness of my days yes. and the demands of my days. Absolutely. And it's and some days are more demanding than others. And those are the days that I'm like, oh, get it together. And it's like, oh, you weren't doing your breathing exercises as often mm. as you should. And just like that, when it kicks in, it's a game changer. So, again, mm. very positive. What are some of the key principles or skills of mindfulness? When you think about non-judgmental or patience or the beginner's mindset, what are some of those principal skills that we need to take on or embody when we go into mindfulness practice? Well, they're all important. I think of the ones you mentioned, one that I think would be very helpful for the listeners is just getting to know how many judgments your mind makes in a given day. Mm. For example, when we pay attention to what our mind is up to, when we slow down enough to actually pay attention, it can really be astounding how many judgments the mind is making. And because of what's called the negativity bias in, our, in the human brain that developed on an evolutionary basis, a lot of those judgments are very negative and yeah. can leave us feeling depleted and drained. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, you're out, you're in your car, and you're in traffic. Well, guess what happens? You start judging the other drivers. Look at that one. What are they doing? They shouldn't have switched lanes. Why are they going so slow? I can't believe it. And before you know it, your emotional temperature <laughs> has risen. Why? Simply because of your own mind and the judgments it's making. Yeah. Further, you have judgments about the people that are around you. Why did that person say that? Oh, that was so foolish. I can't believe they were so mean. Mm -hmm. You know, judgment after judgment, right. judgments about right. how people look, about how they act, judgments about ourselves. Yeah. And so with mindfulness, we're getting to know all of that activity. Mm -hmm. Why? So that we can work with it. Right. We can begin to question our own judgments, question our own thoughts. Is this thought helpful to me? Right. Or is this thought actually making me miserable? Because a lot of our mm -hmm. thoughts are in that category. Right. So that's a really important aspect of mindfulness is that awareness of what the mind is up to. Yes. Another part about mindfulness that I think is really important is the concept of letting go. Yes. So again, as we pay attention to our own mind, we begin to realize how our mind is kind of hanging on tightly to all kinds of things. Right. Moments right. of anger, an argument that we had, you know, last Tuesday that we're still replaying. Yes. Something our boss said, a text that we got from our teenager, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of words on a digital screen, and we're hanging on to it. We're kind of thinking to ourselves, this can't be. Right. I right. can't stand this. This isn't right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, something like that. And again, we begin to realize that it's actually that holding on tightly that's causing a lot of our own dismay, yeah. a lot of our own irritability, a lot of our own burnout. Yeah. And so what we begin to see is that we can have a lot more agency, i.e. autonomy, mm -hmm. over our own mood and our own well-being. Right. And that is actually priceless. Yeah. No matter what external autonomy has been taken, taken away from us, which is really the case in healthcare. Right. A lot of external autonomy has been wrested from physicians, nurses, and others. 
we begin to see that we actually can restore a lot of the autonomy simply by getting to know and working with our own mind. Absolutely. And I think sometimes, even in the profession, we think we have to be perfect on day one. And so having patience, literally patience with ourselves, that we can be beginners at this. We don't have to be the monk on the, you know, month long, you know, retreat in the middle of nowhere in silence in order for this to be effective. We can be beginners here and still be okay. Um, We can don't have to spend these like days and, you know, even hours striving to be something that it never was intended to be and just accept what is and let go of the stuff that's not serving, which is a lot of the stuff which is a lot of this stuff. So very yeah, important. I think in the, in the current healthcare environment, I see, and, and you can probably relate to this, um, people being very angry about all the changes in healthcare, you yeah. know, that um, we don't necessarily control the practice environments in the way that we once did, right. that there are a lot of levels of non-clinician leadership throughout healthcare, and that's become the norm. Yeah. And we can find ourselves really angry and kind of like, this is bad, and how can this be? And how can they be making us spend all this time on these below-grade administrative tasks, Mm -hmm. like the care and feeding of the electronic health record? Right. (laughs) We can spend so much, we can expend so much energy in anger and wishing things were not the way they were. Mm that if we can work with ourselves and and learn to let go and accept this is the way it is, whether I like it or not, Mm -hmm. we can actually find that we are maybe a little more effective in dealing with the situation at hand, in working with some of those non-clinician administrators, for example, in budgeting our time so that we don't get as behind with charts as another example. Mm -hmm. These are all ways that we can work with our own mind to our own advantage. And I think even, and I'm going to add like accepting what it is right now, because if you're not a part of the solution, you are a part of the problem. Mm. And a lot of time it takes more energy to fix a problem that is systemic. So it's easier to just do nothing. But by doing nothing, that thought, that feeling, that emotion continues to churn, like you mentioned before. And it's always going to be there unless it's disrupted by something that is either innovative or different. And that is a way to redirect your mind in terms of mind mastery, instead of letting that thought just continue to churn and recycle in your brain or in your head. Now take that same problem and figure out ways to address it, maybe not fix it overnight, but it's still a mindful way of addressing an issue versus a negative one um, that can cause you know way more damage than than good. Yeah, you're really kind of summarizing the empowerment that we yes. can all have, even in a broken and dysfunctional healthcare system. Yes, that's that there we can still be empowered to effect change, but part of that involves letting go of some of the emotional reactivity, perhaps. Yes. Um, so that we can be more effective in really instituting change. We can be more empowered. Right. Absolutely. So before we delve further, can you distinguish for us the difference between mindfulness and meditation? That's such a good question, and it comes up all the time. So meditation is 
how we become more mindful. It's okay. how we build our muscle of mindfulness because what we're doing in meditation is sitting quietly and we're really doing two things. We're noticing when a thought or an emotion arises within us. And what do we do when we notice that? Well, we do the second thing, which is that we kindly and gently redirect our attention back to the anchor of our breathing. Okay. That's all we're doing right. over and over and over. Sometimes people think with meditation that we're banishing thought. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't banish thought. <laughs> you know, again, our minds are thought machines, <laughs> yes. and that's a good thing in many ways. So what we're doing is we're just helping the mind focus where we want it to focus. And in doing that, we build that quality of mindfulness, that quality of awareness. This is what's going on right now, and I have a choice in terms of how I relate to whatever is going on right now, whether it's what's going on within me, whether it's what's going on with my spouse or my patient or my environment or my planet or my community, right. whatever it is, we build that agency and autonomy. I love that. Yes. So with no further ado, what are the six ways that mindfulness addresses burnout, specifically in healthcare? <laughs> Yes. Without okay. giving out too well, much hot and juicy, because I want them to buy the book, and I want to make sure I keep all those the links in the show notes. But at least get us give us a little taste, even if you don't give us all six, or if you do give us all six, not all the good stuff. Well, <laughs> no, I'd, I'd be delighted to share the six. Okay. The first okay. is what we've been talking about, which is recognizing that you are not your thoughts. Yes. So I think we've really touched on that one, right. that our thoughts are occurring in this closed space between the two human ears, but they're not all facts. A lot of them are, you know, fake news, mm -hmm. for lack of a better yes. term. Yes. So that's the first way. The second is stepping out of stories, mm -hmm. because all those thoughts build storylines, yes. storylines about ourselves, about beliefs about ourselves, beliefs about those that we interact with. And those stories are often highly inaccurate. Yeah. They don't necessarily reflect reality. But what we do is we walk around and we build evidence about them. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be a story of being an imposter, something that many of us physicians walk around feeling. Mm -hmm. And our mind is busy just kind of building this whole storyline when maybe there's a lot of data to suggest that we actually are the real deal. Yeah. So that's the second way. The third way is um, leaning into compassion and purpose. Okay. What brought us into the practice of medicine in the first place? Mm -hmm. Well, compassion and purpose, a desire to care for the welfare of other human beings. So mindfulness can help us reconnect with that. The fourth is reducing reactivity. Okay. Really learning tools, something we don't learn in our medical training, mm -hmm. and I don't think nurses learn it either, yeah. how, to, how to be less reactive to everything that's going on around us. Yeah, and it's hard to do that because everything now everything is designed to be reactive, whether it be clicks, likes, or views, or whether the more reactive or reactive response that it elicits is more engagement that it's going to get, meaning the more whatever that equates to on the back end. And so I think a lot of things that we're taking in, not just in our real lives, but then the things that we consume in via social media or TV are designed to be reactive, which heightens our threshold for reactivity in terms of we're already there. We're already ready for a reactive response. We're already primed because of what we saw or what we read or, you know, on the news or on social media. So the next time we see it, we're already ready to lash out without taking into account, you know, the historical context 
or what is what came before this, what came, what comes after this, but not just what this clip said in the moment. Yeah, it's quite uh, an astute commentary <laughs> on Western society. <laughs> kind of damning, but you know, very true. I get it. Like the movie, The Social Dilemma, right. all the, all that we really understand about the complexities of the internet. Right. But it doesn't feel good walking around in a reactive state, no. snapping at this mm-hmm. or that or feeling, you know, kind of taking things personally when maybe they aren't. So right. that's really what I'm getting at about reducing reactivity. Yes. The next, again, we've touched on it, work with what is. That's yes. the fifth way. Okay. As opposed to what you think it is mm-hmm. or fantasies that you might have. Well, I'll be happy when. Mm-hmm. I'll be happy when my son gets into the right college. I'll be happy when my boss is nicer to me. I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. Physicians are saying, I'll only be happy when they get rid of this miserable electronic health record. <laughs> and who really needs to give over your happiness to all of these external things? Right. You know, that, that adage that happiness is an inside job mm-hmm. is really quite true. We can have a lot more choice and agency over our inner state than most of us realize. And then the sixth way is what I call cultivating upward spirals. Mm. Really um, dwelling in the good, seeing the good. You know, with burnout, we almost have a type of tunnel vision. We feel like nothing is going well, that we're not accomplishing anything. Why bother? We become cynical and we um, lose sight of the good that is there. And I think for us in healthcare in particular, we're working so hard to take care of people. Yes. That's what we're all deeply committed to doing. And when we're burned out, we can't even see that. Nope. We feel like nothing we do matters. So yeah. when we cultivate upward spirals, we kind of reverse that downward trend of it's bad and mm-hmm. nothing's going to improve. So those are the six ways. I love it. And those are good. I can't wait. I can't wait to get into them more because I think they're going to help me be a better provider and practitioner, even though I have you know my own mindfulness practice. You know, everything needs renewal, everything needs upgrading. And I think these are timely, especially now, um, because after the pandemic, every practitioner I know, every provider I know is stretched all the way thin, you know, burning the candles at both ends, still trying to do good, be good, but just realizing there's just not enough hours in the day to do the things that need to be done in the way they should be done or could be done. And it's kind of, okay, but this is what it is for right now. And until we come up with something better, we have to figure out how to navigate that so that we can continue to do our jobs well. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic, you know, shed light on so many inequities, you know, just that that they're all over us in healthcare, and also has led to so much under-resourcing in healthcare, which is something that is going to impact all of us, you know, and when we and our loved ones are in need of care. Yeah. And so I, I couldn't agree more. It's really, we in healthcare need a lot of help. Yes. Indeed. And my hope is that I'm providing that in, in my Mindful MD book. In, indeed. And I can't, again, I can't wait to delve into it even further. So you mentioned something a little bit earlier on about imposter syndrome. So how does imposter syndrome factor into or contribute to burnout in and out of healthcare? And can it be overcome with mindfulness too? Well, the incidence of the imposter syndrome amongst physicians is quite high. And I think that comes as a shock to the general public who maybe thinks, wow, you doctors are so smart. You know, you're so well educated. You make a great income. You know, everybody respects you. There's no way you could feel like an imposter. Every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My name is Gail. I feel like an yeah. imposter most Every of day. the time. Every day. <laughs> That's right. And I'm here at Harvard Medical School and you would be amazed yeah. 
it's almost like the Harvard Olympics, you know, everybody mm. else has done something so great and, you know, curing cancer and saving the planet. Well, who am I, you know, mm -hmm. and, and people can really feel like an imposter. So it's pervasive. It's more pervasive amongst women than men, but it really, um, it really is something that many high functioning individuals are afflicted by. And what I think is really important and the way that mindfulness can help us vanquish the imposter syndrome is realizing that it's simply a thought process. Mm. It's simply a story that our mind is kind of holding on to and looking for evidence to support the storyline. So let's just imagine for a minute that you're giving a talk, mm -hmm. you know, to a group of, of trainees or to somebody, you know, a group, a church community uh, or something like that. And you look out in the audience and you see one person looking down at their phone and you start thinking, oh, wow, they must not like my talk. Maybe I'm not very good at this talk thing. Maybe I'm not really that smart or I don't know how to convey my ideas. And all of a sudden your mind gets going with all of this fodder that you're some kind of phony or fake yeah. and imposter. When really maybe that person, you know, had a sick child at home and it was the babysitter calling to let them know that little Johnny's temperature had gone down, right. you know, right. nothing to do with you giving that talk. Right. And yet the mind is so good at kind of grabbing on to these little bits of, of evidence that the mind thinks are important. Yeah. And so with mindfulness, we can really question the veracity of our own thoughts. Mm -hmm. We can start asking ourselves, well, how do I know I'm an imposter anyway? Right. What is the evidence? Mm -hmm. And is it objective or is it completely subjective? Right. And once we begin doing that, it's almost, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz. It's like the curtain is pulled aside and you see the reality for what it is. And as opposed to the storyline that the mind has been building and, and kind of investing in. Right. I've seen the power of that in myself. Like when I start going down that road, oh, Gail, you're not as smart as others and you don't really belong at Harvard and on and on and on. I can pause and ask myself, well, how do I know that's true? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, my mind is often racing on this thought process and putting me down, really judging me and finding me at fault. But is there really any evidence to support this imposter thing? So I want to encourage your audience, because so many of us do suffer from the imposter syndrome, to just do that, to sit there and, and ask yourself, is it really true? Right. And am I being objective in this evidence? You know, particularly for us as physicians, we try to be science-based. And yet, you know, sometimes we can be very subjective in assessments we make about ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Well, we talked about how mindfulness can address burnout. Can mindfulness prevent it? There's some data to suggest that it can prevent burnout. You know, we have quite a few studies now on the use of mindfulness. It is largely to reduce burnout, but some of it also suggests that it can prevent burnout. Again, because when we're burnt out, again, we, we develop this kind of blinders. We only see things one way. Mm -hmm. We just can't see the good that we're doing. We can't see our own strengths. We lose touch with our own sense of meaning and purpose. And again, with mindfulness, we're kind of putting those blinders aside. We're looking more clearly at the reality of our existence as opposed to our thoughts and stories about our existence. Right. And so I think there's a lot of hope for actually preventing burnout. If we taught mindfulness techniques to trainees in med school, in residencies, in fellowships, I, I'm really certain that we would have a much lower incidence of burnout. 
Would it go to zero? Probably not. I'm not trying to say that mindfulness is a panacea. There's a lot that's wrong in healthcare and that wears people down, you know, the hours alone. But could we mitigate burnout? Definitely. Absolutely so. And I think that's more user error than anything else. I think if we could get everybody to actually employ a mindfulness practice consistently, I think it could prevent, um, serve as a panacea. But again, it's like you have to do it in order for it to work and be consistent about it. And I think we're just conditioned that I need to do this. If I do it one time and I don't get any results, then it doesn't work. And that's just not how health, wellness and healing works. But we're in a take a pill for that kind of framework. And it, that's not addressing the healing component is addressing the symptom. And I think burnout is chronic, so there's not going to be an acute fix for a chronic condition. And we're not quite there as a community that to that has embraced it, that has the will to embrace um, the nature of practice and continued consistency for sustainable results. Yeah, yeah, it's really so true. Yeah. So what are three things someone can do every day in order to improve their mindfulness? Well, we've covered some of them, and maybe I can reinforce those. The first is those purposeful pauses, especially when you notice your emotional temperature rising. You know, let's face it, in the busyness of our days, things happen. You know, we we get an email and we think, "Uh uh-oh, you know, the boss is out to get me Uh or something bad. You know, we we kind of rush to these assumptions, and before we know it, we're kind of in fight mode, right? Well, if they're going to say that to me, I'm going to say it back to them. Mm -hmm. That's a moment to take a purposeful pause. Yeah. Really, just to take a time out, literally and physically, and take three slow deep breaths. That's all. Mm-hmm. Just to cool things down, to kind of put the parasympathetic nervous system back online, the brakes on that fight flight state that you're in. Yeah. So that's really the first one. The second is paying attention to your thoughts mm-hmm. and recognizing that you are not your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that some of your thoughts are factual and helpful, but many of them aren't. So noticing the thoughts, getting to know the character of them, and asking yourself, well, is this thought helping me? Yeah. Does it serve? Does it actually serve? Yes. Yes. And the third that I want to just offer to your audience is the power of self-compassion. Again, so many of us learn to be very harsh with ourselves. We learn that in healthcare in particular. We've always got to do better. We've got to one-up the person Mm -hmm. next to us. We've got to prove that we're smart, right? And we become very harsh and critical with ourselves. And a muscle that tends to be underdeveloped is that ability to bring the same compassion to ourselves that we bring to so many others. So that's really the third. Purposeful pauses, really kind of working with emotional temperature and really understanding that you're not your thoughts and then building the capacity to bring kindness and care to ourselves in our own times of need. Yes. And it's so hard for us to do that. And it seems like, but we have the muscle. We know it works because we do it every day. That's why we're burnt out in the first place because we've overextended ourselves, but we're not extending that same kindness and care and compassion to ourselves first yes and that that is definitely a muscle and we can we're capable definitely so thank you for that reminder 
are there any additional resources now that I want you to talk about your book again um, that you suggest for our listeners who are interested in exploring mindfulness and meditation as a part of their whole person approach to chronic stress and burnout prevention? Yes, I have a free uh, 14-day mindfulness mini course that I call the Daily Dose of Calm. So you can go to my site, gailgazelle.com. I have a lot of free resources, but that's one. Again, it's free. Every day for 10 days, you get an email and I record a talk that I give on a mindfulness talk, a mindfulness topic, and then I guide the individual in a brief um, meditation. So for less than t- 10 minutes a day, you can learn a lot about mindfulness and you can begin or restore a meditation practice. So that's one resource. Okay. And then um, if you want me to talk about the book, Mindful MD, <laughs> six, six Ways Mindfulness Restores Your Autonomy and Cures Healthcare Burnout. It'll be out in late spring and um, it's a very easy read. It's pragmatic. I have mindfulness exercises. I have at the end of every uh, one of the six ways, I answer questions with a little Q&A. And my hope is that it's very accessible to people. Right. It's not, you know, like a big tomb that, mm-hmm. you know, pontificates about mindfulness. It's, right. I'm a pragmatist, and that's really what the book is all about. And I know the aim is generally for those in healthcare, but even as we talk today, I believe this translates to many, if not all, professions at some level, because it's not just healthcare professionals that are burned out. I feel we get there a little bit quicker just because of the nature of our jobs and what we're supposed to do, designed to do, equipped to do, or under-equipped to do. Um, But I do believe even in a lot of other careers, even when it's a job that you absolutely love, a career that you have been, you know, dreaming of, sometimes that's when burnout hits quicker because you love what you're doing. And sometimes you just don't love who you're doing it with or, you know, the systems that are in place management things other things outside of the actual work are I feel are the cause of burnout and so I do believe some of these practices even when it's outside the healthcare realm are going to be beneficial um, and definitely practical in terms of employing them on a day-to-day basis definitely burnout in the field of public education you know that's oh, yeah. it's been the environment has become so fierce for educators public service yes. public health Everywhere. First responders, so, all those aspects. Yes, yeah. in so many fields, we're hearing about burnout. So if my book can be helpful to a broader audience, that would be deeply meaningful for them. Yeah, I definitely think so. So before we sign off, any parting words of wisdom? Well, we can all be more mindful. We can all develop the autonomy over our own minds, regardless of what's happening in our lives, personally and professionally. So I want to leave your listeners really with a message of hope that we can all really have greater agency, a real sense of meaning and purpose and the ability to work with the difficulties that we face. And that's really what mindfulness offers to each and every one of us. Absolutely. Could have said it better myself. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gazelle. And we look forward to reading your book in the spring. Thank you. Really a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for joining Women's Health Wisdom and Wine. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Think about one gem you can take away from this episode and apply it to your own life. Also, remember to follow us, review us, and give us five stars. Till we meet again, remember, nourish your flourish.